Welcome to Escape Routes with Condé Nast Traveller. My name is Melinda Stevens, the Editor-in-Chief of Condé Nast Traveller US and Condé Nast Traveller UK, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey, and at Condé Nast Traveller we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favourite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light, and that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Stanley Stewart. Welcome to Condé Nast Traveller's Escape Routes. I'll be reading from my piece on Rome, which featured in the January-February 2021 issue of Condé Nast Traveller. I hope you enjoy it. Rome, Italy's exquisite, shape-shifting city. There is a fairground at Carousel in the parklands of Villa Borghese. In the evenings, as we made our way home, after a day out, we liked to stop for a ride. Sometimes it was late. The merry-go-round empty, the horses still. But the old attendant knew us. He cranked up the motor, and as the lights flickered, I lifted Sophia onto her favoured mount, a gaudy creature with a golden mane. Standing in the stirrups, she galloped through the twilight, while I sat beneath the trees listening to the sound of the fountains. I was thinking about Rome, and the way it unlocked every kind of feeling, and that private notion that it belonged to us. There are many ways that you can discover a foreign city to make it a part of your life. Sometimes it's a first city, a gap year introduction before others intrude, its impression deep and lasting. Sometimes it's a love affair in rooms overlooking rooftops, or heartbreak in cafes among indifferent waiters. Sometimes, as with me, it is a child. My daughter was born in Rome. Although there are interludes in England, this is her home, and so it became mine. From her earliest months, she was my my companion in exploring the capital. We traveled by bicycle, then graduated to a Vespa. She sat behind me, enthroned on her toddler seat, chuckling and chattering, prodding the small of my back from time to time when she felt I was obstructing her view of the Colosseum or of St. Peter's. I stopped to point out things in this miraculous place, the lions in the fountains of the Piazza del Popolo spouting delicate fans of water like panes of glass, the enormous arches of Caracalla like a house of giants, a man on stilts with a silver top hat crossing the Piazza Navona, the cavalcade of angels on Ponte Sant'Angelo. For me, our journeys were about paintings by Caravaggio, or fountains by Bernini, or churches far too old to be by anyone. For Sophia, it was about trees and birds and carousels and ice cream, and the full moon appearing suddenly between the pines of the Villa Borghese. I was merely discovering a city, 
she was discovering the world. Rome is grand on the grandest scale, that swagger of an imperial capital and a papal seat, and sometimes just of its bloated sense of self. It's really pretty and never merely picturesque. It's scarred and ravished and round-shouldered with age. Its walls are mottled, patched, distressed. Centuries of paint, layer upon layer, peel away, a, a, a pomisette of fine intentions, measured in the warm earth tones of the south. Russet and at terracotta, madder and ochre, or the colours that were the latest thing in Caesar's day. Everyone from the Etruscans in the first millennium B.C. to some modernist architect last year has had a go at improving Rome, and the result is a fine old mess. But what an exquisite mess. Rome is darkly and ravishingly beautiful, la grande bellezza, disheveled, unbuttoned, wild-eyed, is theatrical and generous, secretive and absurdly vain, elegant, coarse, stylish, boorish, vibrant, hopelessly lazy, and always endless fun. Rome is unabashedly corrupt and corrupting. It aspires to sprezzatura, the manner of being effortlessly cool, of bringing style and elan to life's moments without ever seeming to try. It rarely manages to pull it off. Rome bubbles with passion, tripping over itself in a headlong rush that gets in the way of all that sprezzatura. While most cities are optimistic enterprises, Paris and London are confident that the present and future can be greater than the past. In Rome, there's this romantic melancholy, a vulnerability beneath the shiny veneer of La, La Bella Figura. The old extravagance, the glamour of the city that once ruled the world is part still of Rome's DNA, but the reality of this glorious past will always dwarf the present. Here the living can never fill the shoes of the dead. Rome is forever the spoilt child, unable to live up to the expectations of its forebear. Its fame due not to merit, but to inheritance. Yet somehow this only adds to its appeal. Vulnerability is so seductive. I love the melodramas, the barely believable headlines about scandals that outscandal any other scandals. I love the boisterous streets and the labyrinthine centro, where a wrong turn brings you to some intimate piazza you've never seen before. I love the chat and the charm and the bonhomie of Roman cafes and restaurants. Rome always makes, makes Paris seem like a city of stiffs, and London a place of cack-handed innocence. I love the way Italian designers incorporate inspired modern elements in architecture whose roots lie in the centuries before Christ. I love the fat, sensual vowels and the aroma of cooking that trails after you everywhere, and the laundry lines blossoming on balconies. I love the way you suddenly glimpse the mountains beyond, the dark outline of the Apennines, snow-capped in winter, standing on the horizon, this reminder of wild landscapes seen from ancient urban streets. Everyone has their own room, some sentimental map, a personal geography of streets with meanings, piazzas of fateful encounters, cafes with the world tilted slightly on its axis. In a place known by millions for 
well over 2,000 years, Sophia and I were innocently claiming our own, a network of amusements and delights. In Piazza di Spagna, at the bottom of the Spanish steps, we encountered a military band playing jaunty tunes, and two-year-old Sophia danced on the old cobblestones beneath the room where Keats had died, dreaming of sun and love. In Santa Maria in Trastevere, in a nave flooded with golden air, I lit candles for my parents, and Sophia laughed and blew them out, imagining it was a birthday. In the Verpentheon, in midwinter, Sophia thrust her hands into the single column of falling snow, a white ghost in the middle of the rotunda, swirling down from the dome's central oculus. And in the Colosseum, we stalked the underground passageways like gladiators. In the medieval alleys around the Palazzo Cinzi, we looked for 500-year-old clues about Rome's most famous patricide. In the Piazza dei Cavalieri di Malta, we peeped through the secret keyhole of the door at number four in order to see the dome of St. Peter's perfectly framed at the end of an avenue of greenery. In the Galleria Doria at Pamphili, we found Velasquez's masterful portrait of Pope Innocent X, a man who would make Walter Matthau seem cheerful. And Sophia said, I don't think he's a happy Pope. She's not completely Roman then. Understatement is not a Roman thing. We felt the city belonged to us, as if it was our own private realm. It's a common feeling, this, this proprietorial bond. The literature of Roman travel is a kind of exalted orgy of enthusiasms and pleasures, of people who feel it has changed their lives. Montanet, Steindel, Chateaubriand, Boswell, Byron, Swinburne, Wordsworth, Hawthorne, Dickens, Twain, they all went reeling and moaning through the streets, as Henry James said, eager for culture, art, for sexual adventure, for the sweet sensation of the past. The delights of Rome, Mary Shelley wrote, have had such an effect on me that my past life, before I saw it, appears as a blank. From his room in the Hotel de Inglaterra, James also took up the same idea. For the first time, he wrote breathlessly to his brother, I live. And Goethe got carried away in Rome with his new discovery, erotic love, claiming he could only understand sculpture through a actual caress. When his lover slept, he can poetry, counting out the hexameters on her naked back. Every time I emerged at one of the classic viewpoints, the Atpincio in, in the Villa Borghese, the Geniculum Hill, Piazza del Quirinale, I felt my heart swell. Domes rose like hot air balloons, each one with its own story. The Santa Maria del Anima, which was constructed in commemoration of a papal pledge made to the Virgin Mary to bring a successful end to the war with Turkey. There was Santa Andrea del Frate, where Benini's gorgeous angels hover like confused adolescents, somewhere between a swoon and a sulk between ecstasy and misery, and the Chiesa Nuovo, built by St. Philip Neri, who thought of going to India as a missionary until friends pointed out that there was probably more sin in Rome. The Santa Maria Maggiore, whose columns were taken from pagan temples, whose ceilings contained the first gold brought back from the New World after Columbus's voyages, whose facade was likened to a dance hall by the disappointed Pope who had 
had actually commissioned it. Beyond them, the most perfect of domes, St. Peter's, strained at its tethers. It took numerous architects, including Michelangelo, almost a century of dithering to refine those elegant lines. This is Rome. Pull a thread, or push open a door, turn a corner, look through a keyhole, and countless stories spill out like treasure. Of course, a child is a fast track into the heart of the city. You have the illusion that everyone takes the same delight in your offspring as you do. The neighborhood florist wouldn't allow us to pass without presenting Sophia with a flower. The baker always tucked biscotti into her waiting hand. At the cafe, the waiter knew her by name when he brought her orange juice. I feared she began to think that the entire city was at her personal disposal, eager to cater to her whims. Rome was the backdrop of the milestones of her life. She was conceived, probably, in a creaky palace and baptized beneath soaring domes. She went to school in the French Lycée, whose rambling wall gardens within the Villa Borghese were familiar to generations of Roman middle classes. She was confirmed in San Luigi dei Francesi, where she read the lesson, her head only just visible above the tall pulpit while I sat in touching distance of those magnificent Caravaggios of St. Matthew, arguably the greatest of his paintings. Afterwards we walked through the centro. It was a warm spring evening. The lower parts of the buildings along Via della Maddalena still held the cut stones and memories of the ancient city. Beyond the flower cellars of the Piazza di Spagna, we climbed the Spanish steps to have supper at Imaggio in the Hassler, the grand dam of Roman hotels, a meal so refined that we talk of it still. The staff fussed over Sophia in her white confirmation gown, bedecked with blooms, while above the rooftops swallows dove through the gathering dust. Food was always central to our room. In the Chiosta del Bramante we found the perfect spot for afternoon tea with a cafe that served the best carrot cake and seats overlooking the most beautiful Renaissance courtyard. We loved the scrubbed tables of the humble vino e olio on the Via del Banchi Vecchi and the bustle at San Maria Roschioli on the edge of the ghetto. On the terrace of Il Palazzetto, we found our favorite pizza as we laughed together about the tourists on the Spanish steps below. On the way home from dance class, we frequented our favorite gelateria, sitting outside beneath the plane trees and discussing the world. In bars across town, we became connoisseurs of the evening aperitivo, always in search of the perfect array of delicious snacks, charmingly served with drinks. The seasons turn abruptly here, more clearly defined than at home in England, where high summer has the habit of imitating a dank November. Alien winters are cold but short, and spring arrives suddenly, an invasion of blameless blue skies. The vegetable stalls filled with artichokes, fava beans and strawberries. The Tiber, swollen with snowmelt from the Apennines, foams over the lower embankments, where birds hunt for small brown eels and the swallows are back. In the squares, the locals arrive on benches in the sun, chatting, arguing. The city is coming back to life. However, this past spring has been different. The streets were deserted as Romans survived lockdown 
by singing to each other from their balconies. And when we emerged again, it was quieter than it had been for decades, probably for centuries. Italians are very, very conscientious about social distancing and mask wearing. Visitors have appeared, but in few numbers. The lack of crowds means that Rome has returned to itself. In normal times, the city can be a maelstrom. The voice is loud, the traffic chaotic, the queues long. But in these precious months, this is a quieter place. The buildings and sites resuming a life of their own. Without the multinational hordes, the monuments are no longer mere tourist sites. The Colosseum looms through the pines of the Parco di Triano like a galleon, its archers like empty portholes. The Castel Sant'Angelo is suddenly a tomb again, gloomy and funereal. On the altar of Ara Pacis, the emperor's handsome family, so exquisitely carved in stone relief, seem to have been assembled here on the riverbank just for you. And all over you can hear the fountains. It's the sound that Rome makes, the sound of water. Hundreds of fountains run day and night with Apennine water channeled 2,000 years ago. Too often their sound is drowned out by noise, but now, standing in the Piazza Navona or crossing the Piazza del Popolo, loitering among the umbrella pines of the Villa Borghese, this is the sound I can hear, the intimate, sibilant whisper of water on stone. It's a rare moment, a moment of reflection, when you may just feel that the city is, is yours. This podcast is sponsored by the Italian National Tourist Board. Italy is the go-to destination for every season, steeped in centuries of culture and legendary food and wine and landscapes, from Renaissance cities to charming hamlets, rolling hills to tranquil lakes and chic seaside resorts that make the heart sing. Find out more and plan your next Italian holiday at www.italia.it forward slash en. We hope you enjoyed our Escape Routes podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us in the charts and ensure you are the first to hear about new episodes.